0: Love Talk
1: Radio. Good evening. This is Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music, and I want to thank you all for joining us this evening for this special show. First of all, I want to certainly express my appreciation for you all for joining us on our last episode as we interviewed Artistic Advisor for Jazz at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, Jason Moran. That was such a wonderful show, and I thank you all for supporting. That episode. Today is no exception. We have a very special show, and it's actually the third installment of another series on Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice and music called The Trailblazer Series. If you recall, this series started with tenor George Shirley followed by soprano Leona Mitchell. And today we are joined by distinguished professor of voice at Howard University, Ms. Charlotte Wesley Holloman. I want to give you a brief introduction about Ms. Holloman. Ms. Holloman is certainly revered here in Washington, D.C., and nationally for her uh, vocal pedagogy and, and all the contributions that she gives to uh, the study of classical music and opera. She's maintained a vocal studio for over 25 years and I want to share a, a criticism or actual critique from the New York Times which was absolutely wonderful about Miss Holloman. It said an extraordinary gifted young soprano named Charlotte Holloman made her debut in the recital at Town Hall last evening. In her performance Miss Holloman demonstrated a vocal range and facility nothing short of phenomenal. She executed staggeringly difficult arias as casually as if they were Marchese vocalises. In the flora di facce amate from Vivaldi's *Juditha Triumphans*, the long and couple roulades appeared to be tossed off by Miss Holloman with the greatest of ease. The soprano made no less a spectacular showing in Mozart's difficult Mia Speranza Adorata. Miss Holloman even proved able to cope with the finale of Strauss's opera Daphne, written with typical Straussian disregard for vocal limitations. The, a- the aria was listed as a first performance in this city and that was cited in the New York Times in 1954. Please join me without further ado as we welcome to the show the Trailblazer series of the third installment, Miss Charlotte Wesley Holloman. Good evening, Miss Holloman.
0: Good evening, Mr. McCoy. It is my pleasure to join you.
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for for, for being on this show. I've, I've waited for this moment for a while, and I'm so glad that I got a little nudge to, to go ahead and advance further with. I'm so glad you could join us today. I I, start, I mentioned in your bio that you are at Howard University. Could you tell the listeners just a, a little bit about uh, your teaching there, and how did you end up at Howard?
0: Well, let's say that I was almost born on the campus of Howard University, I grew up practically there because my father started teaching at Howard University in 1913. And he established, established uh, as far as I can gather, he was the first uh, establisher of the history department there. And that was sometime, I'll say, 1914, 13, about that time. And I grew up he had We had a home in Georgetown, and he was also the minister of a church there, Ebenezer A.M.E. Church, and I was born in the Parsonage in Georgetown. Then we moved to the campus, practically the campus uh, of Howard University, and I grew up in that area there and attended uh, Washington, D.C. schools, and then graduated from Dunlaw High School and ended up going to school at Howard. So that was the beginning of my my upbringing. And um, I wanted really to study medicine, but my father didn't want me to. So I began to go into music, and I had been studying piano all of my life. So I went into piano for four years. And um, my father was quite for it because he had been a musician in at Fisk University. He was amongst the Jubilee Singers of the class of 1911, wow. and he sang with Roland Hayes and uh, quite an outstanding group of soloists. And they made an impression, of course not the original Jubilee Singers, but later on, and he actually sang for his graduation. He was a soloist at Fisk, I believe in the class of 1911. So that he was also very interested in music. When I went to it, he was pleased. So I could go on from there, but is there anything else you wanted to know about that?
1: Well, I just wanted to comment. I mean, that's so, so amazing because during such times when, when a lot of families, especially parents, stress uh, to go into academic careers to, for stability, that's so amazing that your father, Dr. Charles H. Wesley, who was had certain, certainly strong academic roots, that he had a, a musical background himself, which I didn't know, and that he supported you in that. That's phenomenal.
0: Yes, it was. And, of course, my sister also did it. Um, She eventually went on to Oberlin, but died before her time. And Mm -hmm. so I continued in the music era until I graduated from Howard and needed a credit to uh, graduate. And I didn't know what to do. I needed one credit, had to give a piano recital. My program was tight. So I finally ended up taking voice, which was one credit but taking voice from the one and only Todd Duncan, who was oh. the first Porgie and Porgie and Beth. And he was, from then on, after I registered with him, my mentor for the rest of my career. And he insisted that I continue to sing and sort of leave the piano and see what would happen if I pursued singing rather than piano, which is what I did. And it took me a while, but I managed to get into it and make a career out of it. So um, the piano I,
1: was your first
0: instrument? Piano was my first instrument. I started playing it at Howard University with an experiment of one of the teachers there. She wanted very young children to experiments on a a thesis which he had about the physical capabilities of little children's fingers and their wherewithal in trying to produce the piano, uh, 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 produce them sounds at the piano, and I started that when I was about four and a half. I continued in the junior department of music until i was 16 or 15 years old then i entered Howard university and went in the regular music department so that's that
1: so your music training was was steep pretty early on even in your in your teenage years and it carried right over in, in at your Howard. that is magnificent now i read a clip um for, i read an excerpt from one of your um, new york times reviews could you maybe uh share with us uh, maybe one of your early concert uh, performance perhaps one of your early debuts. Um, how did you feel when that when that took place?
0: Now, do you want to know about the first time I went on tour singing, or yes, about ma'am. the very concert you gave a review on?
1: The, the when you actually went on tour to sing.
0: Well, that was Todd Duncan.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: he had just completed a performance in New York, a run in New York, of Poggy and Best. And I was in New York working on my master's in voice. And he suggested, he said, I've just signed a contract with Columbia Concerts, but they have insisted that I portray a good bit of Poggy and best music on my program. So I'm wondering if you could join me for singing just the certain portions of plug and Death in a short tour throughout the United States, and I said, "Well, I flattered to death, and I said, Do you really think I could do it?" He said, I wouldn't have asked if I didn't think so, <laughs> mm. so he was quite abrupt, so I did, <laughs> and it was a quite an exposure i Sang with an orchestra. I also sang in, uh, which was the very largest place I could have sung in, Eaton Hall in um, Toronto, Canada, with him. Then I did a few concerts in colleges. I'm trying to remember. There were about six or eight concerts, and uh, it, of course, moistened my ego uh, to. Go on and try to do better than that. Of course, mm. he did not utilize me again. He knew that I had to do further training, which is mm. what I did. I came back and did further training in New York, continuing for about eight years until his teacher, who taught me, began to teach me, told me she thought I should make a debut, which I did in 1954. Wow, that's... mm Mm-hmm. And, of course... Go ahead.
1: I'm sorry. Sorry, please. Go ahead, by all means.
0: Well, I was going to say after that, of course, I did much more singing elsewhere. I won a Rockefeller grant, which took me to Tanglewood, and I did the opera workshop there in Boston, uh, outside of Boston, in Massachusetts, for uh, the summer. Did very well because I ended up doing a performance of Ida Mineo with the Boston Symphony. I also did a first performance of an opera by Ernst Talk, who was then the uh, um, presiding um, composer in Germany. And uh, I met quite a few outstanding people who were singing with me who subsequently had even greater careers than I did. One was the recent, I should say she just passed, Evelyn Lear. We were there together. Her husband, um, Tom Stewart, was there at the same time. So there were a lot of influences in my life there. Uh, let's see, I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> well, I did I, a lot I... of...
1: When you you, you mentioned your debut in 1954, that made me think immediately about the time um, back then, especially during racial times when African Americans at the time had to make even greater strides to have successful careers in opera and classical music. So I wanted to bring that forward to the state of opera today. Um, Could you maybe uh, share your opinion maybe about uh, where you believe – I guess the, the racial footing is right now in terms of um, young African-Americans or even other minor, minorities pursuing opera today as opposed to the times when you uh, study the art?
0: Well, I can say that it is somewhat better for being hired. However, in the beginning, all blacks had to be exceptionally fine to be accepted. In other words, your technique, your polished singing had to be three times better than others or else you were refused. That's number one. Number two, they had to see whether you fit the part. You, have, you were cast according to how you looked. And it, would you fit the part, could they do something with you? They did beautiful things, as with uh, Leontine Price, later on. But today it's even, well, I will say it's greater, because they are doing their best to make people not only just fit the part, as casting as such, but they are trying to make people, the audience realize that this is a human being, can be accepted in this part, not only as a white person, but as a black. We're still fighting to get in there, but new strides are being made, very much so.
1: Um,
0: There was a young lady, I forgot, oh, that's terrible, I don't remember her name, Um, uh, Angela Brown, who just last year, I believe it was, or we, we have it before, She jumped in because she was ready uh, and did an Aida at the Metropolitan, which was Mm -hmm. a big, big um, uh, acceptance. The audience loved her. The newspapers loved her. She did very well. And I see where she's going to do now an Aida in Houston Opera next year. And I believe there's a young black tenor who's going to sing also with her. Mm. so so strides are being made but very slowly now I didn't have too much of a problem because I was not doing opera in this country I was doing opera in Europe and I was a female females were at that point more or less sort of accepted but with exceptional qualifications Um, males had a different Acceptance. There was some sort of fear that if he was taken in, he would perhaps be enthralled by singing with a white lady or even being in a cast and would do something which they would not ple- be pleased with. So we had all kinds of things that occurred. But finally, even blacks went in. Lawrence, uh, Um, he who became Larry Winters Mm -hmm. went to Europe and sang there for 15 years and sang with everybody but blacks Mm -hmm. and was definitely accepted his record sold beautifully until he had a brain tumor and died. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's... Really, some steps that are being made, and we don't know yet half of them that are coming out.
1: Hmm. And I want to make sure because I, I, I misspoke. So you just mentioned Lawrence Winters, was that correct?
0: That's correct.
1: Okay, he was my
0: classmate from Howard University.
1: Oh. Wow, That's we were
0: very good friends. We sang together in a in a one performance in Europe. Um. It's the engagement in Santo Domingo, Die Verlogen in Santo Domingo. It was written by one of the contemporary proposes, composers there. And so um, I had many, many very notable occurrences in opera in Europe with exceptional um, critiques. And I had been trained. I've won a grant, I won a Rockefeller grant to go to Europe in the first place to study Italy, which I did with, uh, I should say, one of the great teachers there. He's now dead. And also, I was therefore exposed to his friend who was the European agent for the Metropolitan Opera. And the two of them guided me because I had not had sufficient operatic experience, into a realm of opera, and insisted that I not work in Europe, in uh, uh, Italy, but go to Germany, audition, and go into the German opera, I would be given many more opportunities to sing, and probably given what they called annual contracts. I would be hired for the full year, whereas in Italy, you're hired for single performances. So that took me there, and I stayed there for over five years. I stayed in Italy for about two. And So I left and came home. I came home because I was trying to regroup and go back again with an additional bit of money. I failed because I started teaching, and I did not save enough money to go back again. I have the letters that were written to me by my teacher and the man who sent me, who was the European agent for the net, to Germany. And they insisted that I come back, but I never went back. And I regret it to this day. I don't know what I would have done to get there, but... I should have done something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking. I was listening looking through all of your accomplishments: opera house after opera house, recital after recital, and you kind of already answered my question. I was wondering: um, do you ever kind of think back or just daydream about, you know, what if you would have went back, would you have been at the Met or uh, or anything like that? Uh,
0: Mister Bowell, who was the, uh, as I said, European agent for the Met knew that I was going to be back there. And even as his te- my teacher half-mentioned it. I had to come back, polish what I was doing, before they would even try to send me back to the myth. So, in other words, he had originally said, we're sending you to Germany. You're going to have to spend about eight years here before we, you'll be ready to go out into the world. So I spent 5. But then I I was so poor. I lived I didn't know how to live on the German economy or even anywhere else in Europe. I decided I was going home. I had a master's degree. I was going to teach and go back, which I never did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you hit another point when you when I asked the question about race relations in terms of African American singers and just in general, you, you had mentioned that you know to you you had to be exceptional. Um, when you teach your students today in, in this time you now, two thousand twelve, um, uh, what are some of the things that you've noticed in terms of the preparedness of the students that you teach currently?
0: They're not prepared. And they don't feel that they have to be because they're not exposed to that era where classical music was so great. What they're getting now is, is lots of gospel, where they don't even have to go to school, and they get accepted. And they also have, they do have jazz, which is finally having a rejuvenation. And they can go into jazz, and they don't have to study for years. They can come up with it. There are other ways of becoming exceptional with jazz. But with classical music, there's so many other things involved, the languages, the drama, all of that, which, of course, makes the career much more in-depth in study. Um. I had another thought, but I don't remember what it was now. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's what I'm, I'm believing, that they need to understand, as, and I'm trying to tell them this, that if you saw the Olympics, you saw how much time and how much effort was put forth with those people who won the gold. You have to almost do as much for classical singing. It takes time, money, and patience. And this I don't think most of our students are ready to do. They want to go sing, make money, and quit. (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) You (laughs) have (laughs) it
1: about right.
0: It doesn't happen like that. That's what the problem is. (laughs) Mm.
1: Well, Ms. Holland, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing so much uh, about your career and just your thoughts on classical music, particularly, you know, those who are, are trying to to make, you know, substantial careers. Just in closing, is there any one or two last points that you might want to um, say to the audience, especially if there's someone who wants to pursue a career in classical music, what would be one of the key things you would leave them with?
0: Just what i just said. Hard work. And you have to fill in all the blanks in your study. If you don't know French, you don't know German, you better get started at least to get the basics. You can then try to get the enunciation down. Which is maine people, you go to France and try to sing French to French to French people, and you they don 't understand you american French you 've got to really make it French, same way with German. the Germans don 't want to hear you anglicize I call it they're German they want german German, and then there's the problem of acting you cannot underplay you have to put yourself into the role, really give the meaning of those words to your audience. Don't just stand up and, st- and sing like a statue and sing without meaning coming from inside of you. You pour yourself into a role, into a character. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort.
1: Mm. Ms. Holloman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Trailblazer Series. It's been an honor. I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to see you from time to time. And I just thank you for this time that you've shared with us today.
0: Well, it's been my pleasure. I hope I have satisfied what you would have liked to have heard. And as much as I could think about it in a few
1: minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that I asked sensible questions. I I think that it was a wonderful conversation. And thank you so much. I hope that you have a great evening.
0: Thank you, likewise.
1: All right. Thank
0: you for having me.
1: You're welcome. All right. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you.